0: Hi, I'm Nicole Davidson, and this is the Negotiation in Real Life podcast, the show where we take the lessons learned in real life negotiations to help you build your negotiation toolkit. We'll be hearing from lawyers, entrepreneurs, and senior business people about their best and worst negotiations. Negotiation is one of the most important skills for success in business and in life, but it's a skill we are rarely taught. For many of us, we develop our skills purely through trial and error. We see what works, discard what doesn't, and if we're lucky, we'll have a few good mentors along the way. In this podcast, we're going to give you access to an even greater range of negotiation mentors. Enjoy this episode and please reach out if you have any questions. In this episode of Negotiation in Real Life, we talk with Finn Bowd, the CEO of Bowd, the lawyer's law firm which solves law firm people problems when no one else can. As a former big law lawyer, Finn spent almost 20 years in the trenches of the biggest law firms and their biggest clients. With a wealth of knowledge and experience in the legal industry, she now leads BOWD in providing legal experts to law firms large and small. Finn also really cares about diversity in the profession and believes that law attracts people who thrive when they can live a life of service and integrity. What matters to her is creating a world in which leadership brings freedom to lawyers of all walks of life. In this way, she believes in the unlimited potential of lawyers to create a new way of working so they can do the work they love, live the life they want and serve their community in meaningful and valuable ways. In this episode, we talk about the difference between negotiating with lawyers on their own behalf compared with when they represent clients, the challenges of complex multi-party negotiations, the benefits of getting specialist negotiation advice early, the time it takes to develop negotiation skills on the job, and much, much more. I hope you enjoy listening to this episode as much as I enjoyed recording it. So welcome to the show today, Finn. How are you? Very well, thank you. How are you? I'm very well as well. I'm enjoying a bit of Melbourne sunshine today. We haven't seen too much recently. A bit exciting, isn't it? And we
1: were predicted to have lots of rain and
0: we aren't. I know. Finn, it's a real pleasure to have you on the show. And I'm looking forward to hearing some of the stories that you've got um, around negotiations. And I know we've we've sort of talked before the show about some of the easier negotiations that you've had and some of the ones that have been much more complex. Before we get into that, can I just ask you to introduce yourself briefly to the guests and, and let them know a little bit about you and your connection with negotiation?
1: Absolutely. So I'm a projects lawyer by trade. So I come from a world of negotiating with governments, regulators, um, very large proponents of projects. So uh, private companies or public companies with very deep pockets and construction builders and operators of large things like ports, railways, telecommunications facilities, roads, hospitals, that kind of stuff. So negotiation even though I probably haven't exactly thought about it like this, um, negotiation was very much as part of that project life. And mm-hmm. so I was about maybe 17 years as a project lawyer before I started my current business and was very much part of every day of what I did. And now I run a business where we are a law firm who service other law firms and we connect lawyers with law firms and provide services to law firms to help them with their peak capacity and to manage their workflow so that they can manage their clients, but also their their staff and help not sort of overwork their staff. And I still do project lawyering on the side, and I sort of do it when I when I can to kind of keep my hand in. And there's also a little bit of negotiation. I was just thinking about what we were talking about before the session, in that in my current role as you know running this business that uh, works for law firms, because we obviously do lots of contracts with firms, and it's quite a stark difference actually what it's like um, having business relationships with law firms compared to what I used to do.
0: Yeah, that's really interesting. And I guess that sort of brings us in. I mean, you were saying earlier that um, you've had some really good negotiations with law firms. Can you tell us a little bit about those negotiations and what makes them good?
1: Yeah, so I was was just thinking about this and realising that. So, you know, we so what we do is we um, enter into agreements with law firms to provide them with usually flexible contractors, lawyers as contractors, and it's quite a big deal, you know. What we do is quite a big deal. Law, law firms are very naturally protective of their clients, of their mm-hmm. existing staff, of their business model, of their information about their, you know, about their business, their precedents, all that kind of stuff. Rightly so, we're a very relationship-based profession. Kind of nothing but our reputation mm-hmm. and nothing but our relationships. And so, when I talk to people outside of the law about, you know, what I do, which is finding great. Perfect freelancers and contractors to help law firms. That is not a very surprising thing to do outside of law. So if you're an IT consultant or anyone else, really, it's like, what do you mean? Don't they don't they do that already? It's like, no, we don't do that. It's it's a big deal to let someone into your practice in this way. And so there's a lot at stake. It's really um, serious. We've got we have to talk about things like professional indemnities, and, you know, insurance, and who has the various duties in relation to the client. There's nothing simple about it, actually. But my experience is when lawyers are negotiating on behalf of themselves, so they're not working for a client. It's about them and their business. They are an absolute joy to negotiate with most of the time it doesn't even feel like a negotiation it's just here are our terms which of course I try to make as acceptable as possible I mean my intention is that they are terms that the firm can accept without mm. negotiation they're not designed to be negotiated they're designed to be accepted that's something
0: you know so you've already put the groundwork into coming up with a negotiated outcome that is not just one-sided in your favor or in your contractor's favor but you've already thought about how to make that commercial yeah
1: very much so and that's my that's come out of my experience um as a
0: commercial lawyer
1: trying to mm get things done you know when you as a project lawyer um your focus is getting the project built and you're on these you know significant Timelines, time restrictions always. And so the best project lawyers will be trying to put positions that are acceptable. Mm. And you might, when you're a junior, start out thinking more along the lines of, well, we'll put this to them, but we're ready to fall back to this other position. And then as you get more senior, it's like, no, don't don't put them in the position that we want to fall back from. Put them in the position that we want to accept. We build trust. We build relationships. They look at that and they go, oh, okay, that's reasonable actually. I don't really need to negotiate that. And they focus on the stuff that they really care about so I learned that and it's interesting to hear you talk about that as a almost pre-negotiation and it, and it kind of is you know mm. putting something that is commercially acceptable based on your own understanding of the other side is got to be the number one key to avoiding getting into difficult negotiation
0: yeah well it, it's bringing from the very beginning a collaborative approach to the negotiation, isn't it? I mean, as you've described that junior saying, well, look, we know we're going to get here, but we'll start here so that we've got that wiggle room. It's the assumption behind that, that you're just going to be in there bargaining and trying to chip away at each other. And if you take that assumption out and you go to a more interest-based approach, then you have the position from to start from that you've described. So I think that's really interesting. And I want to come back because you said you know, you've helped these negotiations with the lawyers by already coming in and and putting terms that you know aren't going to be horrific um, from their perspective that they're already commercially sensible do you think there's any other differences when you're negotiating with lawyers on their own behalf versus when you're negotiating with them when they're representing a client what else changes for them
1: my impression is Mm. that lawyers would rather do anything than have another argument actually And it goes against the kind of public perception of lawyers as people who love to argue, but my impression of it is that they really do not want to find an excuse to have any difficulty. What they want is for things to be smooth and they want Mm. things to be relationship-based rather than contractually based. They want it to be about the the two of you or, you know, the two two organisations pulling in the same direction Mm. rather than be adversarial. And so part of it maybe is kind of... Negotiation fatigue, you know, and and here I have a choice. Um, I'm not representing someone else. I can make my own decisions about what I care about and what I'm going to, you know, raise. And my experience and having and you know, we work for most of the big big firms. So I'm, so we're talking the biggest firms actually, and going through their CFOs, going through their general counsels, that that everybody along the, the whole kind of chain is really really looking to only pick out an issue that they genuinely care about, yeah. and if you know, I had one recently with a new client, a big firm, and the general counsel had, you know, picked out an insurance issue. And I was like, you know, in my head, I'm like, look, we've, this has been tested, you know, we get, we've we gotten this through so many, you know, other general counsels. I just need to, I think some facts are missing. I need to explain why this works, you know. And so I just kind of did a little thing on, you know, here's, here's how it all fits together in a big picture from an insurance perspective. And that was it. They were fine. They were like, yep. Good, fine. Don't need to change. Yeah. Your, don't need to change your document. So it's yeah. I think it's really. It is really interesting. It reminds me how, you know, I work with lawyers because I really like lawyers. Um, and you know, I I see us for our failings and our flaws, but I also see us for. A lot of the really wonderful things yeah. that are about lawyers and people who are attracted to law, and when you work in commercially, the last thing you want is to have to negotiate against a non-lawyer. So doing kind of projects, if the lead negotiator is not a lawyer, you most of the time it's like, oh no, we're we're in trouble. We, you know what we we really want a lawyer to negotiate against because at least you can communicate, usually quite clearly, with each other about what the problems are, mm. and uh, and certainly that in this business, my experience of negotiating with the biggest firms actually over stuff that really does matter
0: for people
1: and their service to their clients they're a pleasure they're an absolute pleasure
0: so this is where I think what you've just said is really interesting because my perception of what's going on there where you've got the non-lawyer who's having to negotiate with the lawyer is that they become much tougher negotiators because they're frightened of negotiating against a lawyer and I think it's a cultural understanding of what goes on. It's the reputation of lawyers. and I know from my own perspective, I grew up thinking that lawyers were like LA Law. And in fact, Grace Van Owen on LA Law was my idol. I wanted oh. to be Grace Van Owen. And you know now it's not so much. I think obviously I it to be Harry Hamlin?
1: I think I wanted it to be. I really liked. I can't quite but,
0: remember. I can't remember what his character name was. But no. um, you know, but we've seen things like LA Law. We've seen things like Suits. We've we've seen all of these dramas where the lawyers come in and it's all this aggression and it's all this hostility. There's not an ounce of collaborative negotiation going on in Hollywood's Hollywood. representation. It, it's pretty boring, isn't it? <laughs> it would be boring. <laughs> we think we should agree this. Oh. Yeah.
1: Yes, that sounds fine. Thanks very much. Okay, sign here. That doesn't make for
0: very good. That doesn't make for very good. Terribly, terribly boring. But this is an interesting thing when you talk about people who are then coming in to negotiate with lawyers and get on the defensive from the very beginning. And and I think that's a challenge for lawyers to how to how do they work with that.
1: I think that's very true.
0: You you talked also earlier about having had some much more complex negotiations. Can you tell us about your experience of that and, you know, what are some of the things that you've taken and learned from from going through those more complex negotiations?
1: Oh, look, I mean, they, you know, we've got this one, you know, when you and I first started talking about this as a topic, and I thought about, you know, my kind of worst in inverted commas negotiation. Yep. And I don't know that I could say that I've learned anything from it. It was, it was just terrible from beginning to end, yep. you know, it, it just it was just so bad. And so I thought it was an interesting one because you, I think you probably, you know, we haven't, I haven't given you all the detail and you mm. may have some perspectives on it because it was one of those ones that, was so outside of the norm so you know like I said before my whole practice was always being part of um, large teams often leading the negotiations myself against really big players so you know name name brand companies some Mm -hmm. of the biggest companies in the world um, and I might be working for them or I might be opposite the table from them either way and negotiating with governments, and I mean state governments and federal mm. governments, and and regulators. Negotiating with regulators. I mean, this is kind of it doesn't really get a lot more from a corporate perspective, high stakes or complex than those things. And that was normal. That was kind of you know I didn't even really think too much about it as a negotiation. It was just kind of what we did. Mm. And but if that's what you know when I think back, I'm like, well, it's it's days and days and rooms going through issues, papers, lists of tables of issues, and discussing those. You know, trying to understand what the other side's perspective is, seeing if you can find a middle ground and sometimes if you can't, just kind of splitting the difference because that's all you mm. can do. You know, that was yeah. just kind of life. But this one that that I had um, when I was working for a, a proponent of a rail and port project, so the owner of the project um And we hit what was kind of a regulatory issue. It was was kind of regulatory, basically, really was where the problem sat. But the owner of that regulatory problem was a government agency. So a kind of a government agency says, we want this kind of protection. We want to not allow certain people to do certain things in this this area because we're doing something else. So you can kind of infer like you could imagine it it could have been something like you know, I don't know, could have been like a defence sort of site, for example, you know, where, where you might say, well, this is top secret, we don't want anyone going near. It wasn't, that's not what it was, but yeah. it was that kind of thing. And so you've got this agency who is whose job it is to deliver something important, you know, that's what they're tasked to do. And they've built a regulatory regime in order to do what they think they need or what they believe they need, which is, and to protect them so they can deliver this important thing that the government has tasked them to do. And that's part of their reason for being. That regulatory regime and our project came into conflict with each other, you know, Mm -hmm. in that we needed to know that we could build our enormous railway of 600 kilometres heavy haul, which means very large, physically space in terms of the railway with very big trucks carrying mining, carrying iron ore all the way out to a port, um, which is built just for this purpose. So you're building Mm. this port just for this purpose and then you're building this railway just for this purpose to put iron ore on it, to take it out to the port to ship it overseas. And you've got this regulatory regime which you can use to turn us off, like to actually stop the railway from running. But we've already spent, to build it, we've already spent five, seven I think by the end of the project it was probably closer to 9 billion dollars building this thing mm-hmm. and you've got this regulatory ability to just say actually that's a problem for us it's interfering with what it is that we we need to do and so we're just going to turn you off so we identify this as a, as a problem and that's what you do. That's what that's like what I do is I go yep. through and yep. work out what all the problems are in a project and then clear the way and that's why I would be negotiating with regulators and negotiating with government because it's going to them and saying we need your help with this, here's what we propose, can we get a special exemption, can we offset the impact that we're going to have on this thing by doing something else, you know, what can we yep. do? Yep. Can you, you know. So that was sort of what what a big part of what I would do. And it normally works, it kind of always works, actually. Um, I mean, not that you get what you want, but you always find a way through. It can either be you can yeah. sold with money or it can be sold with time or it can be sold with negotiation or it can be sold with problem solving. There's always a way through. But with this particular agency, we wanted them to agree that once we built this thing, that they wouldn't they wouldn't say that it was a problem, that they would accept it as being yeah. allowed to exist because you just can't build it. It's one of those pre kind of conditions. We want to kind of pre-approval. And they said, we're not giving you pre-approval. We won't promise you that we'll accept your project, your infrastructure until it's built and we'll look at it then. And we said, we can't do that. We can't spend, firstly, we're not going to be given that money by the banks if we can't. Show them that you can't turn us off because they're only going to give us this money if you promise not to turn us off. Otherwise, how are they going to get their money back? They're not going to give it to us. So telling us, you know, to wait and see is not acceptable. So we had to escalate that. So we had to go to the actual regulator, so this is the agency, not the regulator who informed, the agency informed the regulator. We had to go to the regulator themselves and say, we need your help, to which they said, there's not really anything we can do because we just do what the agency kind of tells us to do. They advise us and if they say it's a problem, then it's a problem, basically. So then we had to go to the, the department that sat over the agency and was responsible for the regulator and try to get them to help, which they duly did by telling the agency to sit down and negotiate with us. And so this is what I was reflecting on was that one of the kind of the biggest difference about this particular negotiation was that the other party didn't want to be there. Yeah. and they didn't believe that they should be there and they actually, they were doing what they were told because they were told to turn up and go and try to fix this problem yeah. because the, the governments cared about our projects because, of course, you know, iron ore makes a lot of money for the state and for the federal governments and it's important for Australia's economy and mm. et cetera, et cetera. So they wanted it solved um, but the agency didn't want it yeah. solved. And When I think about it, I'm like, well, really what was going on was that they didn't want it. They, didn't, they just didn't believe that they should have to give us what we were asking for. They never mm. did believe in that. And um, so they were going through the motions without actually having any interest. I mean, I think they wanted it to go away. They just didn't want to go, it to go away by
0: compromising. It's a really interesting scenario. And I think you said this never got resolved in the end.
1: It never got resolved. What happened in the end was that the it dragged on and delayed the project and then the iron ore price bottomed out. It was just after the sort of post-GFC. It was for a couple mm. of years after GFC. The iron ore iron did very well through the GFC and out the other side, but about two or three years from memory after the GFC, there was the, then was a problem with the iron ore price kind of hit later. And so the project went on ice because it was such a big investment and such a massive thing that needed to be done. Mm. The owners said, look, we can't justify spending this money at this point when the in sales price is too low. And a lot of projects at that point got put on, got suspended. So so we never resolved it. And we stopped just before. Final investment decision, yeah. and aside from the iron ore price, this well, it was the iron ore price. It was customer contracts of the final kind of agreements with the customers, and this regulatory issue. That was it. There was the three things: iron ore price, customers, final agreements with the customers, which was complicated because there was international relations issues. Yeah. And this regulatory issue—that was it. Those the
0: well, thing. and as you said, this is a critical one because you can't invest nine billion in in an infrastructure project that then you're not permitted to use or you're stopped from using. Correct. It's interesting because I'm glad you, know, you
1: understand that because we seem to have trouble getting that
0: explaining across to that. But, yeah. but this is After where 12 it's months, yeah. Yeah, and look, you know, when I when I look at this from the dynamics of what you've just said, I mean, the, the most informative area of negotiation that I would look here is in what's the party's alternatives if they don't come to a resolution. And, you know, when I'm doing analysis of negotiations for people to help them create their strategy, the alternatives is a really important part. So alternatives is basically, you know, if I've got all of these needs and concerns that I've got to address through the outcome of this negotiation, if I wasn't able to get to a negotiated outcome with the parties I'm currently dealing with, what other choices are available to me and the better that the alternative choices are at meeting your interests, the more bargaining position you've got in the negotiation and the more power you've got in the negotiation. So it's one of the sources of power in negotiation. Now, here for you, your clients' alternatives were pretty poor because if they couldn't get this outcome, it may they had to shelve the whole project, potentially look at other alternatives of how to get this ore or continue, continue transporting the ore in whatever way they were if it was already an existing mine. Not very good. So there's real incentive to negotiate. But for the agency, if they didn't come to an agreement with you, I'm not seeing that there's any consequences at all for them. And this is the challenge because they can afford to say, no, they don't have to come into the negotiation because there's no pressure. So there's got to be some way to bring them to the table. You've got to find that pressure point to actually get them to care. Now, once again, you've already done what I would have been saying is you've escalated it. You've gone to the regulator once again. You know, you've got no will from their perspective too. Obviously, there's no consequences. There's no negative publicity. There's no pressure from anywhere. The only thing that leaves you is, you know, how did this fit in the political agenda? You've really got to find some way to bring it onto that political agenda and get the actual department or the minister to be putting the pressure and and make the consequences for the party down the line um, yeah. significant enough that they care and and that's why i can see that in a, in a situation like that unless there's a real political agenda at play and there's adverse publicity coming out you're in in that place of being in a rock and a hard place yeah.
1: You've exactly nailed it. Those were exactly the issues. And what we did is we went to the the kind of the department that that sat under was sort of the innovation and technology type department in the federal government. We went to Prime Minister and Cabinet and we also went to... The, the energy and resources so whoever mm. energy and resources sits so we had these other two portfolios prime minister and cabinet and yep. energy and resources portfolios and we did speak to them the kind of implicit message was if you get to the point where everything except for this issue is resolved in your project so if everything is done except for yep. this then we will step in So we kind of had – we didn't know that that would fix everything, you know, but they – did say that when all of the other issues are done for you. So you've got your financing, you've got your customer agreements, your iron ore is what you need it to be, and you're ready to go. And everything except for this is here, is is standing in your way, then come and talk to us.
0: Yeah. Which is still hard, isn't it? Because as you said, how do you even get the financing in place? Well,
1: exactly. If, if right. it's
0: relying on them. So that's right. Yeah, so, look,
1: you to, so you have to get it subject to condition, subject to condition. Yes. And you need some kind of indicative, yes, we will fund it if you can get this issue solved. Yeah. Um, is is what you need, and that was kind of that was sort of where we were eventually up to. Um, we're sort of in that kind of space, mm. and the and the publicity. So we originally kept our powder dry on that because yep. we were concerned. Well, we thought it was valuable to keep it quiet and mm. keep it in our back pocket. But we had just started to start mentioning it in, yeah. in sort of press and start sowing the seeds that this is actually undermining the ability of this project to go ahead.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, so. Yeah, so that that was it. We had kind of this idea of maybe public pressure, but it was difficult because what they were doing was valuable. It was was important. It was added. You know, what they were doing was not meaningless. It was very important. And so people supported that outcome that they were working on, the agency was working on. They also supported what we were doing. And so there wasn't any obvious kind of clear winner from a publicity perspective. People wanted both. You know, they wanted both to go ahead. And so, and the state government got involved as well. So, the state government helped us with the federal department. So, helped mm. us get in the door with the federal department. So, we kind of, we involved everybody, but yeah. it was the most complicated thing I have ever seen, mm. ever heard about. You know, I mean, international international negotiations would be like this, but it was like yeah. that. But within, within Australia with the, yeah. you know, we had our own, we had the Department of Mines in the, in the state government. We had the premier department of the premier in the state government and then the department of resources in the federal department of prime minister and federal yeah. and the department of innovation technology whatever they were in the federal plus the agency plus the regulator yeah um plus our bankers um <laughs> and
0: it's it's it a recipe just, oh it's a God. recipe for challenges isn't it because yes. you know not only have you got parties with Often, probably contradictory interests and objectives, but you've also got parties with different levels as to where this particular issue sits in their priorities. And with any negotiation, you've got to actually make it a priority for the parties that are involved, or it's easy to just leave it to the side, whether it meets their interests or not, because they're just, they don't even get to the, the position of actually analysing it. So I can see exactly why it became so difficult. And look, in hindsight, based on what you said, it was probably a blessing in disguise that they hadn't started their $9 million investment um, given what happened to the iron ore price, but it'll be interesting to see if it comes back again.
1: Yeah, that's right, and and it's one of those projects that's often been talked about. As you know, we'll, we'll come back when yeah. you know, the the oil prices only improved since then. I think what you're giving is this oversight or this overview into what is happening with the parties. Whereas, I think when we were in the middle of it. We did understand, like, what we had to do was go and understand. So we didn't, on day one, understand all of these competing interests and the politics and stuff. We just turned up thinking, well, obviously we need to kind of do a deal on this because surely no one wants this project to not not go ahead. You know, we went into it expecting an outcome to be not that hard to reach. And we had proposals. I mean, we had plenty of suggestions about how we would do things to Mm -hmm. not damage their or unreasonably, you know, interfere with them but we had to learn all of that. So we had to learn all of that on the job um, in the middle of it. And we really struggled with, like I can see that, you know if we'd have had somebody like you to go and ask and say what is going Mm. on here it really would have helped to map it out to sort of say well what's really happening is these people don't want to negotiate with you because they don't have to because there's no pressure so yeah
0: you know eventually we work that out but I'd I'd say even just take a step back though Finn because 80 percent of your success in the negotiation comes from the preparation and I think bringing someone in as an expert negotiator early on to sit down and actually anticipate some of these problems that might arise rather than, as you say, you know, and and I think typically the way people do it is they learn these problems as they go and then adapt to them and resolve them. Sometimes if you can preempt them, you've actually got a strategy in place so that um, you limit the amount of damage that might be done through your initial approach because sometimes you only get one go at well, you only ever get one go at a first impression. And I think if you're aware of some of the risks, you can really be careful about how you approach things and the way that you do it. And it's interesting because it reminds me of a story. I remember um, back in the days when we used to fly places, um, (laughs) I I was on the plane coming back from Sydney and I met a guy who asked me what I did and we got got talking. And once he knew I was into negotiation, he was like, oh, I've got this fantastic story. Now I'll share as much as I can without, breaching um, confidentiality, but he was a partner at a large law firm and was talking about they'd worked for a client who was going to sell an arm of their business that was, it was a significant transaction, like it was a billion-dollar transaction. And what they did was, I mean, typically in a scenario like that, you'd run a tender process, you'd nominate a successful tenderer, and then you'd run that through the contract process and do the deal this project, because it was such a significant deal to the business, they actually brought in a negotiation advisor before they started the process. And what the negotiation advisor did in that situation was he said, guys, we're going to run a tender. Absolutely. But what we're going to do is not pick one successful tenderer. We're going to pick two. And they then negotiated parallel contracts with these two successful tenderers, each of them knowing that only one of these contracts would get through. But it really protected the position of the vendor, um, the business that was selling this arm, because what it meant was, you know, you couldn't get three months or five months into the negotiations and be held to ransom by the purchaser because you'd invested so much in the deal. And that story has really stuck with me because to me it's a perfect illustration of why bringing expertise in at the start can put you into a a great situation. I think, once again, you don't avoid all of the problems. The problems are there, but it's how you manage them and it's about giving yourself the best chance of success. And I wonder, you know, with that sort of expertise on your deal, what difference it might have made.
1: I think. I, look, I think that's right. Absolutely, and I can't. I can't know, obviously, what would mm. have happened, but I can reflect on a less high stakes in terms of dollar value, but still mm. very serious high stakes regulatory negotiation that I've recently been involved in. So when I think about it, there, there's a lot of parallels, and what I yeah. learned from that one with the iron ore project on the this multi-party, multi-stakeholder. Mm um government regulator based type situation I drew on my experiences of that for this for this other regulatory kind of matter mm. with a client who because I still do I still practice like I said before this yeah. is something I actually took on as a pro bono matter because firms will often not go up against regulators and governments for pro bono mm. but I will because I don't have an alignment with any clients yeah so I took on this this pro bono matter which was against a regulator. And it was um, it was bet the it was a company, bet the company for the for the client. So not mm. big dollars in terms of what we're used to talking about, but for them it was either business survives, business doesn't survive type situation. And I mapped out at the very beginning when yes. they first brought it to me, I did these kind of pages and I did on these big, like a whiteboard and, and these big sheets of paper, all of the stakeholders yeah. from the beginning you know, all of the different people who might be involved, including ombudsmen, the different court levels, the yep. different um, p- political p- the parties, the different political representatives who might be involved at various points, who supervise a regulator, who was the, um, the, the body for the industry, you know, so which yep. industry would be, all that stuff, yep. mapped it all out and came up with a, a game plan from the yeah. beginning, knowing Perfect. what the possible endpoints were, And what the triggers were, including public, including going public, including, um, you know, it's sort of a public relations thing, including tapping into, you know, all of that stuff. And what it meant was that even though, so the client had what you said before about the initial approach in your first opportunity, Mm. your only one opportunity at first impressions. I think about, you know, that client, because it was their business and they were very, you know, really was, if they didn't make this business work, they didn't have a lot of other options. And their approach to the regulator had been highly emotional. And, and that was, you know, before I was sort of involved. And once, once I got involved, it was like, we, we stopped that. We stopped yeah. with that. We're not kind of trying to appeal to their better selves. You know, we're trying to touch their, their soul about the sort of significance of this to you. We need to stop with that. This We need to deal with it on their in the way that they're used to in this yeah. kind of controlled way. But at the same time, we're not going to give them an easy run. We're going to hold their feet to the fire and here is the plan. It really did give me this experience that I could use, and I was able to bring that whole experience to bear to map this out. And that worked. It took us, I think, how it was at least 12 months, might have been more, might have been 14, Mm. 15 months or something from when I got involved to when we finally resolved
0: it. But
1: it absolutely worked, and there were no missteps.
0: Yeah, and oh, that, that stakeholder mapping process is so important and that's, you know, it's one of the things that I teach in the courses that I run around negotiation is you've got to sit down, you've got to work out the allies, work out the foes, how do all the relationships connect and it, it really is an important process. So, I mean, that's
1: priceless. I mean, that's taken me, you know, 20 years and this very, very, ter- you know, incredibly difficult, impossible to navigate situation mm. to learn that. But if people could come and learn it, you know, instead of having to learn it the hard (laughs) way to actually go and be taught because that's something that, yeah, I really, really you know it's just not so, it's something that and a lot of people would go through the same thing and they still wouldn't probably learn it they wouldn't yeah. necessarily know what had happened that they could use it for their next situation so i mean yeah or they, well,
0: they'll pick it, up certain pieces but maybe not the whole picture yes, as well so yes. i think it's that would in, be amazing it's interesting though because obviously you have learned a lot along the way and you're obviously somebody who reflects a lot on the process that you've gone through have there been any other experiences or have you had any felt? learning and what impact has that had on you in what way and any you know have you had any negotiation training at any point oh
1: um no not since uni no so um so uni I did negotiation I did pursue all of the practical skills mm-hmm. so I did negotiation skills client relationships I did negotiation competitions yeah things like that but so I did learn about your BAFTA your best alternative yep. to, you know <laughs> actually your
0: BATNA, BATNA so it's so been BATNA, a while
1: <laughs> so, so you go BATNA best alternative to negotiate outcome yeah and um and you know those kinds of things yeah. but the rest of it I think has been learnt on the, job. on the job and probably I think what you say about me being reflective yes like I'm reflective and I also watch other people so I watch Mm. if I'm in the room but I'm not the one in the hot seat I watch what happens and I think about what went wrong in that you know in the exchange and you know I think I can see these two people are talking at You know, and and I'll go and reflect and say how could we get them, how could we, you know, try to get people talking about the same. So, yeah, I think it's been on the job learning. No, I haven't had, I'm trying to think if I've had any. I mean, there might have been some courses at graduate or, you
0: know, but certainly nothing. Like It's really interesting, isn't it? I mean, when you think how much lawyers negotiate and the amount of education they have in that space, it's
1: Well, but this is, you know what, but this is kind of what I was saying before. I didn't until we, you and I, started talking about negotiation. I'm like negotiation. I'm not really. Do I? Oh, wait a minute. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I do. That's what I do. Actually, when I think about it, what I am doing and what I have done as a projects lawyer has been kind of nothing but like that's what you're doing when you're sitting down with contracts in a room with people and talking about how you're going to reach an agreement. Like that's what we're doing. But that's not what how it was ever discussed.
0: No, really and and it's so, I mean, negotiation, uh, there's one study that concluded that we negotiate about 150 times a day. Now, to me, that sounds a little excessive. That's someone I think with it's... children. That's someone with small children. In which case I would agree. Possibly, possibly. But, you know, a, and I do a lot of work, you know, when I do training, it's anyone from graduates through to partners. And I often will get people who are two, three, four years out of their careers. And I say, so what experience have you got in negotiate? And they're like, none. And I'm like, no, 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 no because you live with humans. Um, you you know, you negotiate with your parents, with your friends, with your flatmates, you're negotiating holiday leave, you're negotiating work scope. And it's really interesting how we don't connect these interactions. We don't think of them as negotiations. And, you know, it's one of the things that I think is really fantastic about negotiation is it's not just about those big ones, but you actually get to practice on the little negotiations, which are sometimes less significant, sometimes more significant because of who they're with, and it, you, you can practice it all the time. Yeah. I'm, I'm just a bit of a negotiation geek. It's a bit sad. Well, I
1: like that perspective, but, but you know, shouldn't lawyers be negotiation geeks? I mean, yeah. like, it doesn't really matter what you're doing. It doesn't, you can be, I mean, if you're doing pure advisory, but there's sort of no such thing as just advising. No. There's always, you're always involved in some type of persuasive role Mm. and so but yet i don't that's we should all kind of be geeks about this and i think i probably have you know with us talking have realized Mm. that i probably am a little bit without having the language for it yeah i find this fascinating and it's endlessly fascinating and i really enjoy it when it works i get a lot of pleasure if i i consider it to be an absolute win and always have if i put a position to the other side and they go yeah That's fine. I'm like, oh, nailed it. Yeah. Nailed it. You know, because we were happy. We, 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 we've accepted that, you know, we've put it because we can live with it. If they can live with it as well, I have done my job so well because I understand them and what they need. And I found a place in the middle. And so that to me is like total, that is really kind of that sense of walking away going, oh my God, I'm so good. And and yet, and so I I clearly do love this stuff, but I've just don't not haven't understood it from an academic or No, not academic but
0: theoretical theoretical yeah. that's the
1: right word I haven't I yeah. haven't thought about it from a theoretical perspective.
0: yeah and and if it's working on a practical perspective you probably don't need to so I think that's all fine
1: well but, yeah but I could have done with some help 10 years ago yeah. I mean you know like at 15 I mean yeah you yeah. have been starting to understand what it was that I was learning mm as a fourth or fifth year or whatever lawyer yeah. and to kind of understand that this is a thing that is happening here and there are ways that this plays out and there are tools that you can use that you might not have seen, you know, whereas yeah. what I just did was build on tools that I saw or tools that I'd used, yeah. things that I'd seen go badly and it's just through nothing more than that. But you could really fast yeah. track that and avoid, I mean, you'll never avoid all pitfalls. You can't prepare for
0: everything, but I could no. say that. But it, it's taking it away from being lucky about having the right experiences to learn from to being strategic. So. Yes, yes. But I think- I've, I've had a fascinating discussion with you, Finn. It's been really lovely chatting to you and hearing some of your stories and experiences. So thank you for your time. Pleasure.
1: Great to get your insight
0: into those. My pleasure as well. Are there any contact details or would, would you like to leave some ways that people might get in contact with you and what was- they want to talk to you about.
1: Absolutely. Um, yes, because probably lawyers will listen to this, won't they? That's, that's probably put some of the people you're talking to. So, um, so in terms of, so we look after law firms. We help them find lawyers who can work on kind of fixed term or rolling bases, um, which is something that's really needed at the moment with the real talent shortage that we've got. Mm. Um, and we love to talk to lawyers who are interested in working like this. It pays a lot better than just quietly. It pays a lot better than any... Um, Uh, employed work does, gives you a lot of freedom and a lot of choice about how you work, where you work, um, what work you take on, what your hours are, when you're having a break, all of that kind of stuff. So for me, it's this ultimate in win-win. You know, I've kind of got this model where I think the law firms are winning. They might not get everything they want, but they sure get everything they need. And the lawyers are winning. They are getting everything that they certainly need. And in some cases, everything that they want as well. So definitely um, glad to hear from firms who are struggling and thinking what are we going to do we just do not have enough people and we are having to think about turning work away that is when you call me and lawyers who are thinking oh i'm just i just want to do something differently i just want to what are are my other choices Mm. Then, yeah that's when you jump on our website um which is which is bowed.legal and or send me an email which is um, at fin.bowed.legal if you just google it you'll
0: find us Fantastic. And I'll put all of your contact details in the show notes as well. So once again, thanks very much. It's been an absolute pleasure, Finn. My pleasure. Glad to come along. Thanks so much. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Negotiation in Real Life podcast. If you've taken away some great tips from this episode, I'd love to hear about it. So please connect with me via my website or LinkedIn. If you're enjoying the podcast and would like to learn more tips to improve your negotiations, head to our website, nicoledavidsonnegotiation.com.au, where you can follow my blog, watch presentations and download resource sheets. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast so that you get every episode as it comes out. If you have an interesting negotiation story that you'd like to share with my audience, head to the website and complete a guest application. Until the next episode, happy negotiating.